He said you could pronounce it like sincerity, but without the sin. One of seven children, he was born on January 10th, 1895, in Ivy Street, Prahrain, a, a neighborhood near Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. As a young child, his mother was left behind by her alcoholic husband with six kids and had a hard time bringing them up. As a young lad, it was his keen interest in the, um, in the Native Americans in the outdoors that fortified a lifelong fascination with the natural world. At 12, he left school to take a job at a hardware store and eventually as a telegraph messenger. This job for the postal service was his first opportunity to ride in an automobile. Many a time, he would catch rides on the cable cars by waiting to hop on the back until they started moving. In 1913, he entered his first race at the Ennismore Athletics Club, despite never having competed in an athletics event in his entire life. He won. Later in that same year, he won his second race, running one mile in five minutes and 10 seconds. Then at 19, as the only male in his household, he remained in Melbourne during World War I because he was declared medically unfit, or in other words, he didn't meet the standards because he was considered frail and as a young lad was often violently ill, especially after running races. He continued running and eventually clocked a 434 mile at 21 years old, throwing up in the infield immediately afterward due to having eaten only 20 minutes prior to the race. With the passing of time came the burden of responsibilities. And in his early 20s, he married a young Dorothy Clara Barwell and put his athletic career behind him. It was during this decade that he put his financial securities above his athletic pursuits and his health suffered for it. Through his 20s and 30s, an avid smoker and drinker, his health deteriorated rapidly. He maintained an appetite for reading and consumed everything from philosophy to mysticism to religion to fiction. Ultimately, though, in 1938, he suffered from a nervous breakdown and it prompted his taking six months leave from work. And it was during this time he reinvented himself. It allowed him to take stock of his life and reassess his priorities. It was during this time that he went on a long walk and devoured poetry, psychology, philosophy. And by this point, he was well past being distrustful of doctors because of the potent drugs they had previously described him that seemed to, seemed to only make matters worse. <clears throat> he decided to say, take his health in his, into his own hands and it was time for a reinvention. He, tried, he had tried alternative medicines. He turned now mostly to raw foods, a vegetarian style of eating. He quit smoking. He picked up weight training and he started running again. Slowly, he began to think more clearly, feel better, have more energy and become stronger. This compounded as the months passed by. Eventually, he started competing in distance running events again. He continued reading anything he was curious about and that included studying the movements of animals as a means of improving human movement patterns. At age 51, he completed his first marathon with a time of three hours and one minute. And shortly after that, he bought a three quarter acre plot of land in Portsea near the beach outside of Melbourne and decided to embark on a new journey as a coach. He later dubbed his property as the International Athletic Center at Portsea and his philosophy of strength through nature meant that training should resemble playing because 
people should be spending time outside in idyllic surroundings rather than merely enduring circles around a track or in the drudgery or um, involving themselves in the drudgery of a, of a gym and monotony as well. He trained dozens of runners, including champions like John Landy, Les Perry, Dave Stevens, and Herb Elliott. As a coach, athletics was the foundation for a much broader education, he believed. His techniques drastically improved his, athletics per, his athletes' performances in track and field, despite or in spite of the fact that they never once ran around a track. Instead, they ran sand dune sprints, off always barefoot, lifted heavy weights, which was counterintuitive at that time, swam around in the ocean, engaged in rope climbing, and read Plato, poetry, and the Bible, consumed raw oats and wheat germ every day, and practiced visualization. Needless to say, he was well ahead of his peers, and he drew heavy inspiration from the Greeks and distilled his strength-through-nature philosophy into what became known as Stoatonism, a blend of the Spartan ethos with, the, with Stoic philosophy. He believed that athletes should stand great pain and convey no emotion. He was adamant that his athletes be self-reliant and independent to the point that once they exhibited total commitment, he encouraged them to take control of their own schedules and training. This approach, paired with the development of the Stoughton lifestyle, paid off as his teachings contributed to the early development of the second athlete to break the four-minute mile, John Landy, and another, Herb Elliott, who broke four minutes on 17 different occasions and never once was beaten at the mile in 36 races. Elliott went on to uh, set a world record and win an Olympic gold at the 1960 Rome Olympics in the 1500 with a time of 3.35. To contextualize how prolific Elliott's running was, his 1960 Olympics time still would have won him gold in the 96 Olympics. This coach, well, his name was Percy Wells Sarity, the original Stoughton, and he was light years ahead of his time. But perhaps his legitimacy was overshadowed by his often eccentric and ridiculous behaviors. He, at times, he'd be seen galloping with horses, Another time, he once led a group of athletes through the Melbourne streets carrying bamboo sticks to replicate the running style of African tribesmen covering long distances with spears. At 65, he managed to leap a moat and scaled spiked railings designed to keep out football hooligans to cheer on Herb Elliott at the Rome Olympics, but he missed him crossing the finish line when police dragged him away. Percy Sarity could certainly be provocative towards his own athletes. For example, belting around the track, um, before his athletes competed in, in spitting out, you may run faster, but you'll never run harder. Another time, walking up to Roger Bannister and saying, so, you're Mr. Bannister, we've come to do you in. Other, the other examples um, did, not, uh, they did not mesh well with the Australian Athletic Authorities, as you would, uh, might expect, and the Olympic Councils as well. That being said, it's a testament to Sarity's style that in 46 years since he's died, his ideas and influence are undeniable and more relevant than ever. So tonight we're going to discuss a little bit more on Percy Wells' Sarity background, his philosophy, and all things training. And I've got Chandler here with me once again. It's good to be here. Awesome. We've been looking forward to this one for a while now. <clears throat> and... The book we're going to be combing through tonight is titled Athletics, How to Become a Champion, which was originally published in Australia in 1960. 
So this is going to be a two-part series episode. Uh, the next one will be covering be fit or be damned. So hope you get as much out of this as, as we have. We've been de- I've been devouring this guy since I'd heard of him about a year and a half ago and seem to can't get enough. Uh, hope to own all of his books one day. So this just seems like a good starting point. So we're going to get right into it. So again, one of the things with Sarity was he was really into running sand dunes, his athletes, and he was doing strength training. I mean, everything he did is really counter. It was not. He was going against a lot of the norms of the times, right? In the '60s, where a lot of other people lifting weights and running sand dunes barefoot. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the best training historian, but certainly, I would say 80% of what Sarity was doing with his athletes was not was not the norm and maybe was not done anywhere else other than his training camp in Fort C. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it was very unique from, from the sand dunes to um, having certain standards for uh, lifting, you know, lifting like one or one and a half or two times your body weight for different movements uh, as like a minimum standard. Um, and I, I think he did a lot to shape what we now talk about in uh, track and field and, and running like athletic runners. Um, probably the best modern example would be the Nike Oregon project before it was um, disbanded. Uh, but they, they had a big emphasis on being good athletes and that would turn them into good runners. And, and I think Sarity was the father of that. Um, so yeah, very, very unique training in his day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what he would do with his athletes too, a lot every single day, and when they'd be in peak condition, I think they would do it for up to an hour, where they would run this little sand—not little, but I, I don't know how many hundred yards it was. It was it was pretty quick, but or short, but they would run up these sand dunes barefoot, and they'd go repeat it and repeat it, and they wouldn't wear a cloth. I don't. He wouldn't allow. No one would wear a watch. It was very, you know, they're in nature, they're they're not distracted by any other. Inner, it, he wants them to totally connect by being in that that that. I don't know, ideally, you've got the ocean right there. You've got everything, right? So, um, again, not all of us have sand dunes by the beach, but still, he he, he made it happen. And um, it's really interesting considering that they never, you know, ran around a track. He coached guys that went on to become record holders at the mile or, or you know, breaking five, four when no one was doing that or one other guy was doing that. Yeah, I think a lot of their training venues, th- this is just me yeah. opining on the subject. But I think a lot of the, the ways they train, he was scaling it so it became all about effort and not about talent. Um, and they had a wide range of ability. Everybody from somebody like Herbelli who's going to win Olympic gold to himself who, who mm-hmm. was at that time in his 60s and you know relatively healthy uh, yeah. but coming not from a, a place of great health. And when you're running up a sand dune, there's you could really only run so fast, mm-hmm. uh, but you could run at a wide range of efforts. And I, I think he was looking for a very high effort that scaled to not deter, you know, dictate based off of how fast you could do it. Because a lot of times he would run the sand dunes with his athletes. I think almost every time yeah. from, what I've, from what I've gathered. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's a, you know, 60 plus year old in the world who could run a track workout with a, you know, future Olympic gold medalist or current <laughs> Olympic gold point. medalist. But you could run up a sand dune together. Um, and and yeah. I think that was, um, that, 
maybe not why he did it the, the way he did or consciously, but I think that played a big role into a lot of the cross country style training and the cross mm-hmm. training, um, you know, what we would call now cross training. Um, try not to be anachronistic too much talking about Sarity. Uh, but I think a lot of what he was doing was to scale it so he can be involved with his athletes and that his athletes of different ability levels um, could train largely together. Now, they had loops that were relatively flat and relatively yeah. quick. Uh, and they still do a lot of them barefoot, I believe. I, I'm photos I've sure, seen, yeah. like a little grass trail and they're mm-hmm. going. Which but. fits well with his naturalistic yes. approach and... I don't know where you want to start. I, I know the book fairly early gets into that. Uh, but yeah. there's a starting point in the book that you it's, want to talk about. It's, it's re- coming straight out of the foreword, and it's t- he calls it the sand hill treatment. treatment. And there's a photo of, it looks like, 10 athletes, and he behind Sarity, he's leading them up a hill. Um, and it's a be- it's an awesome shot. I actually have it in my, in my living room. Um, and you see all these silhouettes with the sun beaming down in the ocean in the background, and they're, they're charging up the sand dunes, so... Here we go, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the forward because it seems like an appropriate place to begin. The boys go out for runs in single file through the sand dunes and along the coast where rough paths exist. They will, they will have fun for many miles in this fashion. Although in the end, the stronger push ahead and the weaker do as, me- as best they may. One of the things the boys like doing is to take, take a newcomer out for such a run for the first time, especially if he is well-performed. They have the ability to make even the best very tired, as more than one overseas champion has experienced. My own ability at this type of training is now reduced to six runs up the sand hill with short recuperative rests between. The broken waters of the ocean are due to the reefs and the rocks under uh, underwater on this part of the coast. As low tides... At low tides, these reefs will lift up above the waters when it is possible to swim among the holes and channels. This is very dangerous and two near tragedies have occurred so that deep swimming is forbidden. On the bay beach or the recognized surf beach, the swimming is safe and controlled. A study of the arm movements of the runners in the picture shows that all are similar, although not exactly at the same part of the stride. So again, he's just talking about his you know, sand hill treatment really being like the crux or the apex, like the, the foundation of, of what made his style of training or philosophy, whatever you want to call it, different. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into, now we're going to dig into the book. <clears throat> Let's go, where is it at? Right here, we're going to go to page 42. I don't know why I'm saying that because no one's looking at the book. <laughs> um today. Be on guard against early success, that underminer of the building of the future, that quicksand upon which many a big career has founded and been quickly swept away. If you are gifted and have easily won early success, grow to hate rewards, praise, flatteries, and those who bestow them. All this is heterodox, I know. If you are truly great, you will realize the truth of what I say as you read it. If you reject my words, you will be less great by just that much. To be a great runner, it is not essential to be born an Adonis or perfect man, competition winner. 
It is not even essential that you attain average height. You can weigh from six to 17 stone and still succeed in some event. Although I would fancy you for the marathon more than the mile if you, if you weighed only 84 pounds and for the hammer or the shot, shot put rather than running a running event if your weight is in the order of 224 pounds. But there is an event for everyone. That is the great feature of athletics. This cannot be said of world-class football, for example, but it is essential to be strong or to make oneself strong, very strong today. And we're gonna to jump to one other part here. I believe in the open mind, the mind open to possibilities, the mind with a definite bias to giving every athlete the benefit of the doubt, a chance, even many chances to prove his possible worth, prove him a failure after his career is finished, whilst there is life, there can be some hope of singular success for all. It may be after a career that leaves one short of championships that one turns to the marathon as did Stanley and Prentice in Australia and Peters in England. The first two to become national champions and record holders, Peter to become the fastest man in the world at this event in his day. It is wrong to assume that we can accurately determine any athlete's propensity at, at an early age. So the coach must learn to take them as they come. I have in mind the coach who is interested in, in building champions. The case of the coach who teaches in a school or a similar institution is different. He performs mostly a mundane task and is paid to perform it. Personally, I have never been interested along such lines of endeavor. And my message, if any, for the specialized coach of the ambitious athlete, not that anyone can indubitably be dubbed one or the other exclusively. In athletics, one is all and all can try to be that one. Okay, so... I know there's a lot there, but again, um, really emphasizing, I think his background's playing a role there um, on, on him, you know, being sick and weekly, not getting picked up for World mm -hmm. War One, right? So really having a, a drive to, to pick those athletes who are, who are willing to just, again, effort, that's theme of effort, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can hear how he's harkening back to himself as being that not the most talented uh, from the start and, and I think so when I was reading this uh, what it reminded me of actually is some modern uh, motor learning literature and so in motor learning and, and motor performance uh, it's a, a subset of the kinesiology field uh, and a relatively recent one certainly he would have known about it in its academic context uh, but it's there, there's this concept that you can't predict uh, per athletic performance based off of early stage athletic yep. performance. And so if somebody uh, is a really good little league pitcher, the odds are that they're going to make it to the big leagues um, based off of their prowess in little league is very low. Um, now, they might be the ones who stick with it longer and, and as a result develop mm -hmm. longer just because they saw that success. But the, the odds of them actually being the best professional pitchers who can throw, you know, 100 yeah. plus mile per hour fastballs or, or yeah. like really great curveballs or whatever, right? Um, those are, you, you can't pick them out based off of early, uh, early performance. Yes. You have to look at every stage of development. Yep. And I think the biggest thing based off what he's saying there for youth coaches is 
don't spend more time with your most talented athletes. And this is like at the very early developmental level. Like at a certain point, winning becomes important. You have to develop the people who are going to help you win. Um, But pre-high school for sure, and I I think even well into high school, try to develop everybody because you don't know who the future stars are um, based off of performance when they're 12, 13, especially, especially when they're eight. And, and, um, Which we clearly emphasize too strongly in this country. Yeah, um, but I think I think he's in, uh, indicating that that was even the case then. Yeah, you know, it's, this isn't a, a, true. a modern problem. Uh, I think it's we always like in everything finding that newest, yes. the up and comer, right? Who's yeah, next? Who's exactly. the who's the latest? You know, big shot or up? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think if we look more at the fundamentals, um, you know, if we're talking running. Who is able to create power in that seemingly effortless way? Who, who is able to um, you know, handle a lot of volume without getting injured? Those are the talents that you can look for that, that do translate later. But if you just look at somebody's mile time in high school, you know, Steve Magnus is a coach that we both really respect. Mm-hmm. He ran, I believe it was four flat point eight yeah. or point seven uh, in high school, which it was the number one high school time uh, for the mile. Um, his graduating year, and he never ran faster. Never. He, ha- he, he still is not a sub-four-minute miler, even though he was the next great thing when he graduated high school. You know, guy yeah. runs four flat, yeah. and, and you think, oh, well, this is going to be your NCAA let, let me, champion. Yeah, let me get him under my, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think you, you just can't pr- predict that future success the people who were NCAA champions around his time, they probably were running like 412, 415 in the mile in high school. And like comparatively, those are like different sports running four flat and 415. And, and somebody jumping from that, that different sport mm-hmm. of less ability to that next level of, of being able to handle uh, collegiate running and professional running and, and all of those other elements. And yeah. And so, you know, I, I really loved that passage because I did not indicate early success in running at all. No, no. And I, you can, you're yeah, a testament to that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm closing in on guys who I think are legitimate shots to win national championships in the NCAA. And I, I don't see that as outside the realm of possibility in, in the next year. And I ran in, in cross country and for 5K in high school, I ran 16... 18 um, at Woodward Park and a lot of these guys ran under 15 minutes like over a minute yeah, faster than a me. Big. <laughs> and, and, and I'm beating a lot of them now yeah and, and yeah I, I think there's just a lot to be said there about not uh, chasing that early success use yeah. it as motivation yeah but um, uh, one, one more I, I wish I had the quote right in front of me um, from the book Running with the Buffaloes um, okay. about the the 1999-2000 uh, uh, Colorado cross-country team. Yep. And their coach, Mark Wetmore, said something along the lines of, you want to be uh, the best in the NCAA, don't be top 10 at Foot Locker. Don't, uh, mm-hmm. don't come into college with that national championship already under your belt. Be like 30th at Foot Locker. So mm-hmm. indicate some talent. You can't come in and, and yeah. have nothing, but come in hungry. 
and, and come in and shown that ability to work to get to that next level, not peaked out early. So I, I guess that was the last thing I wanted to hit. No, nope, that's that. interesting. That reminds me, I remember reading a book called Rogue Warrior by Dick Marcinko, AKA Demo Dick Marcinko. When it started, I believe, SEAL Team 6, mm -hmm. uh, really total renegade. But he had said that when he created Team Six, he wasn't looking for the Clydesdales, the you know six foot four Ironman triathlete or studs in high school, whatever you know, varsity this that played college sports. Um, he wanted the guys that finished at the back of every single drill, just like the the Wolverines, the grinders. He described them, and those are the guys he picked because he's like they're willing to suffer longer than the other guys. They're they're expected to not finish, and they still they stick with it. So that's a sort of a like i think along those yes. same lines in terms of like early success and what it can do to your what can do to your psychology mm -hmm. and how you frame like later failures might be different than somebody who hasn't failed early on yeah exactly and that's not to knock people no not at all success but i think like sarity said like show disdain for that early success like, yeah be, be is... hungry for the next thing or, or like you know yeah. if, if it is like a, a high schooler showing success on the track don't view your high school success as like the the end all be all. If you really are serious about it, be looking at collegiate success or or national level success or international level success. Um, there's no room to rest on your laurels, and, and I think that was the emphasis that uh, that Sarity was putting there. Yeah. More than I don't think he quite understood the developmental side of it, but I think he saw the the resting on laurels that was happening yes. with early champions, and and that right there is enough. To, to make that point. Yes, yes. And we're going to add in this quote as well. This book is, I mean, I don't even think we're going to get through what I want to get through, um, which is okay tonight, but it's, this guy, it's just, there's so many gems here. So here's another one on those same lines. Ignore then whether you are tall and thin or short and stocky, whether they laughed at you at home where they are often unkind or at school where they are mostly blind anyway. Indeed, to hell with a lot of them. If you feel you can do it, so again, that yeah. this is just really, he's really, I don't know, emphasizing effort, 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 like ignore the noise. So, and I, you can see as we progress through this book, how that really shapes his philosophy, um, especially right here. So this is a little bit more on, on um, I guess his take of like what a good coach can be. Um, so courage, persistence, inurement to pain and suffering, these can be taught, but only by personal example. Merely to speak of these um, is to present the shadow, the ghost. The substance is missing. The young learn by personal example. In the end, concepts are empty. Courage cannot be taught or exemplified by reading it out of books. It is true, such examples related can be inspiring, but in the end, the great coach must be able to exemplify in his own life and personality all that he would teach. To me, it is axiomatic. If he cannot do it, he cannot teach it. He can only talk about it. And that to me is a vastly different thing. Um, and then there's another quote here. I, I want to tie in with that later on. If he cannot do it, he cannot be expected to gain the conviction of the man who can. True teaching is not merely the dissemination of academic learning. If the coach cannot exemplify in his own life that which he teaches, he will fail by just that much to produce great athletes. Um, in the end, the seeker finds the teacher. The many merely take what, it is to, what is to hand. 
If it is quantity one seeks as a teacher, it is best to remain mediocre in method and ambition. That which will attract the exclusive few in the nature of things repel the many and vice versa. And then here we go. The great coach must be heterodox. Often he is deemed a crank. More often he is in conflict with authority, officialdom, and officialdom. He rarely enjoys in his best informative years the recognition that may be later accorded to him as, as it invariably is if he is, as a, is a truly great teacher. Just as the coach must not be tempted to make too optimistic predictions as to the athlete who rises too quickly in a sudden burst of spectacular reform, performance, so must the athlete not be too ready to accept all that may be presented to him as a sure and certain formula to world-class athletic performance. There just isn't any. I myself offer nothing but the paraphrased words of a great wartime leader, blood, tears, sweat, and suffering. That is the formula to any and all great achievement, at least in the athletic world. I know of no other. See, yeah. You just get a good taste of his is it's sort of his anti-authority anti-convention defiant attitude here which really is was off-putting obviously to a lot of people sort of but it was also you know it's one of those greatest strength greatest weakness situations absolutely yeah it was uh it, it was that sort of divergent nature that, that you could say is courageous for sure and, and foolish at times but that he integrated well, it seems, um, to kind of use a union term mm -hmm. uh, of like integrating that, yes. uh, that otherwise dark, um, nature. Uh, and yeah, I, I think he, he did do a good job of mm -hmm. pushing back against boundaries. And I don't know if you talk about the parts where he talks about world records and stuff, uh, being broken, but his whole take on like what was possible for human performance was so beyond what was being discussed by most people at that time. I, I don't remember exact numbers, but like where most people are talking about trying to break 350 for the oh. mile, he's like, oh, humans can run the mile in 340 or, or under three, he said eventually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That yeah, he, he did say that, uh, which is, I mean, I, I think I mean, we are at about 340. Two, I think, or three forty-one is is Hikam Elbaruj's mile, okay. and that hasn't been touched in over twenty years, I believe. Um, and and somebody this somebody else is going to write in the comments now this time, like, wow, Chandler doesn't even know what the the mile <laughs> world record is. It's and that's exactly the yes. point we're <laughs> making with Sarity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, so now, again, he's, we're just still touching on some different aspects of his coaching philosophy. And it, 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 mind you, he started really getting into coaching and running um, when he was sick. He took those six months leave. He was attending a lot of horse races in Australia and started like obsessing over the patterns of and the movements of how the horses were running. And then he started like trying to – there's photos in one of the books of him like galloping like a horse and trying to instruct and doing like classes, instructing runners – these like different forms of galloping. So it's really fascinating that that like changed how he thought about humans running. So mm -hmm. um, here we go. And this is him after studying or exam or just maybe observing how children move. Um, 
If we study the movements of the child from three to four years to 10 or 10 to eight years, eight to 10 years, we will see in most cases free uninhibited movements, no tensions, no poses, no false assumptions. But from puberty on in particular, the growing young man acquires postures, attitudes, and movements of those deemed to be his peers. He is taught to do things this way or that. Even when not taught, he observes the methods and movements of those he admires and copies them mostly exactly. So he goes into what the coach's role is with like knowledge of these movement patterns. So when coaches, mentors, and teachers impose concepts as to posture and movement upon their pupils or athletes, the result of these expected or imposed ideas and states is to cause tensions that inhibit free performance. The object of the teacher is not to impose a technique by rule or direction, but to free the pupil or athlete from the conditioned responses that the body has usually adopted by the acceptance of false standards, beliefs, and ideas in our civilization. These are all mental first. Never did the rules free an athlete or advance his desire to excel. Most rules are limiting, many retrogressive, all suggest control, are repressive, and aim at conditioning an athlete to something less rather than freeing him to become something more. So again, he's talking there about the, I guess, knowledge or lack thereof coaches have with movement patterns and um, really comparing it to kids, right? I, I see my nephews, nep yeah, when my nephews, when they, they, the way that, how mobile they are, they can crawl, they can crouch, the way they can touch, every, you know, it's, it's unbelievable and it's just total uninhibited. They're not thinking about, you know, holding it. No, there's no the concept of time is irrelevant to them as well. So it's interesting that he's talking about that, how a teacher can be um, like how they can impose or, you know, really limit the athlete from where the athlete should be free to, to really explore movement patterns, explore things. And then uh, on the other page, I know he, he jumped to the other quote, but he's talking about rules, right? And how that can be um, not optimal either. So yeah, I think, I, I think he, he's touching on something. Again, I'll go back to kind of like the motor learning, motor performance uh, viewpoint. I'm, I'm actually in a graduate level course right now um, on motor performance. And uh, we were just talking about individualization and how everybody has their own unique movement patterns and trying to overcoach that is not a good idea. And, and so like what often happens the scientists are finally catching up to what coaches have been doing, you know, since at least mm -hmm. at least the fifties, um, and, and probably much earlier of knowing that you can't you can't put athletes in boxes. You can't be like always move exactly like this. Now there's some general patterns that yes. have to be present. Like you can't uh, have no boundaries at all. Exactly, yeah. and, and he even started giving boundaries even if you wouldn't say it like that in telling them how to run in different ways you know he, he would tell them um you know i don't know if you're going to talk about what what he says about tension and you know uh, whether you're relaxed or tight mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he would talk about like oh you need to have some tension here or um you know when you look at this person's arm carriage it, it looks like this and he, he, uh, even though he maybe wouldn't say that he has rules for that, he certainly does. He certainly has like 
minimum standards of like you must move like this and then within those boundaries yeah there's this um uh there's this request on the athlete to play with movement and i think we we get afraid of that especially in the west we get afraid of playing mm-hmm. sports yes yes um, yes which isn't that ironic aren't sports meant to be played yeah um you gotta practice you do drills right right exactly and it must all be robotic and succinct and quantifiable exactly and i think that's why you do get a lot of good results out of that i don't want to say that that doesn't give good results but countries where that doesn't exist as much tend to do much better than the u.s in in global competition and i'm thinking mainly the east african countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, especially those two, um, where, yes, they, they do get a lot of, they spend a lot of time working on their form, but it's rare to see two Kenyan athletes run exactly the same. It's very common to see two American athletes run almost identically. Uh, and, and I'm talking at the global stage. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking like, like high school level. I'm talking like world championships, Olympics, um, Diamond League meets uh, major marathons, all, all of those. It's rare to see Kenyan athletes move the same way. Now, now maybe the untrained eye goes, oh, all those East Africans have the same loping stride. And, and it's true, they do like all lope a bit more than, uh, yeah. than Western runners. But they run so differently from each other because I think they play within the boundaries yes. of, of, um, of good running form. And, and it looks amazing. Um, and it, it's amazingly effective and, yeah and i think not tying yourself to must hit these positions yeah. um it frees you up to play more uh with that movement yep no that reminds me a lot of uh remember the quarterback brett Favre. Mm-hmm. never could do a three-step drop conventionally through everything he did was very unorthodox right it was like your class like the, he had that whole persona of like the country boy gunslinger right that was his whole his shtick and it worked for him like and you have tom brady it's very you know everyone wants to make the next tom brady following the tb12 method the prototype you know drop back hit like everything's timing you know and then you look at other quarterbacks philip rivers who looks you know he had this weird throwing motion and there's there's i think we try to create these prototypes and that's not how you there's a part of it's like finding that right balance of like how much do you give them with that or you try to tweak but then also you have to let them, there's a part of that form that's going to be natural and you have to just let them run with that, I think. Exactly. Yeah, in golf, you look at somebody like Jim Furyk or yeah, yeah, uh, Bubba home, Watson, yeah, Bryce DeChambeau. Swing, yeah. like, like all of these guys don't have, they don't have a good swing. Yeah. Like uh, most, like if you took Jim Furyk to a, a golf teaching <laughs> it's like pro, an octopus in a tree, right? Right, first... like your, your average local country club golf pro is going to be like, that's a terrible swing. Yeah. You got to clean that up, get that yeah. on one plane. And like, he's, you know, now I don't know if he's retired or if he still is, is playing in, in the PGA, but like he had one of the best careers of anybody ever. Yeah. And, yeah. and that swing was very effective for him. Yeah. You're not going to teach somebody to swing like that. Yeah. But if it works, don't fix it. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great example. And if folk, if you're folks, I don't even know if there's multiple people listening to this <laughs> folk or person out there, bot, <laughs> algorithm, whatever. Yeah. If you have a chance, look up Jim Furyk's golf swing 
and you'll be yeah the casual viewer will even be like that looks funky not yeah that can't work but it does especially so. if you put that next to like tiger woods yes um, and tiger woods is a pretty by the book swing it wasn't yeah. so much at the time it's kind of yeah. become the new model but yeah a, a one plane golf swing versus like a three plane golf swing is, with a little hitch and a yes, little exactly. yeah yeah that's funny oh. all right so back to again the, the effort's going to be a theme here but um, i do not seek champions i cleave to triers who are sincere the lesser trying to become more appeals to me more than the arrived wishing to go further so having survived my rudeness, directness, and repellent approach, which I call realistic <laughs> and not gratuitously made one, the athlete and I get together. He comes into my home as a son. He is completely received and accepted. His training is commenced by many hours of explanation as to the nature of things. So he is sent away to run and to keep on running. So it really, I like this part right here because it goes into this, his egalitarian um, approach as well with with his group of athletes so in referring to these the new athletes that come to his camp for training deeds are his argument not words not claims not hopes not estates nor privileges rich or poor educated or not educated he does the same chores sleeps and eats as everyone else does we are not impressed by his antecedents or personal history if these are high, more is expected from him. That is all. And then he wraps this chapter up with saying, it is the overcoming, not the success of, that is important. So it's a really open approach, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Doesn't care. It's, it's how do you conduct yourself with the group, right? I don't yep. care what you did before, what your ambitions are. It's like, what are you doing now? What are you doing tomorrow? What, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and it's also that not caring, like, he is working with world-class athletes, but in the book, he also talks about like people who he's really proud were able to run 430 for the mile, which compared to somebody who's running like 355 for the mile, those, again, those are different sports essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think like as a young coach, you know, getting to work with high school athletes and um, uh, adult athletes, uh, you know, eventually I want to coach collegians or post-collegians. Um, and it's so fun to work with the people who just really want it. Um, I'm not, I'm not getting to work with any world class or even national yeah. class athletes right now. And like, I, I wish I was, um, I, I guess if they were triers to use, uh, mm -hmm. Saturday's vernacular, but I get so much out of working with somebody who's like probably ranked you know, 500 from the state of California in the 100 meters or mm -hmm. something that really, really wants it, I get so much out of that. Like, it's yeah. so satisfying. And, like, when I show up to practice and they show up to practice and we're both, like, on it, it's like, it, I, I can't imagine working with a very talented athlete um, being any more rewarding. Like, it, as long as mm -hmm. the, the care to improve is present like the 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 journey is just as meaningful no matter status exactly yep. now i want to make it a career yeah. and you need the status to get money essentially yeah. like yep. like you don't get money from the 500th ranked yep. uh, high schooler in california um, you, you do have to coach that some of the best but um 
in terms of coaching, that's what I enjoy. I enjoy working with triers mm-hmm. um, and, and they show up every day wanting to get better and, and it forces me to go home and spend hours at night trying to fall asleep but not able to because I'm trying to figure out how to get them better. Um, and that's, I think that's what coaching is all about. Maybe not staying up hours at night trying to figure out how to get all of your athletes better, but but maybe that is. I would well, I would hope that's what coaches do do if things aren't clicking, rather than, mm-hmm. yeah, blame the athlete and call it a night, right? <laughs> yeah, be more talented. Yeah, do better. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, all right, so. Here we go. I, you alluded to this part earlier, um, and we're just kind of skipping around here. It is also true that as a competitor, it is e- easier run to relax, easier to run relaxed in poor time than it is to hoist double the body weight overhead or to pin a powerful, violent wrestling opponent. It is even more futile, futile for a fighter to attempt a delivery to deliver a knockout punch relaxed with a non-clenched fist. Maybe the advocates of relaxation for the runner have never been participants in either the fight game or the iron game. I would think so. So I reject relaxation, except as a temporary rest process that permits full effort. If the use of the word relaxed was abolished and the word rest cycle cycle or pulse was adopted, we may, as coaches and athletes, advance the cult of athletics a little further. Again, that, I mean, that's such an awesome quote. And, and again, like my educational background makes me realize how, how much advanced he was of exercise science. Um, and again, coaching and athletics and sports tend to come first and science tends to come along and be like, why does this work? Um, but one of the key things that we know about, um, uh, about muscle action is you have to, you have a, a period of uh, tightening, a, a tense period, followed by a period of relaxation, a rest period. Um, and, and every single cycle of, of movement, you have that tension, relaxation. And if you only cue relaxation and never tension, you don't get efficient muscle action because you just sort of flop around and rely on, on passive forms of, uh, energy production, like, like your, um, uh, tendon, tendons, essentially, um, like your Achilles tendon and your, um, some mm-hmm. of the tendons in your hips, uh, like you don't run fast like that. You can't. And I feel like you're operating in this weird, like 40 to 70% range or 80% mm-hmm. range rather than like a hard, you know, 30% to a 90, like the hard, right? Exactly. Yeah. What like I, a light, like a light switch almost, right? Exactly. What I cue my track sprinters to do, and I got this from uh, Carl Lewis, who's you know, one, yep. one of the greatest sprinters of all time, now he's the coach at University of Houston, um, and, and they've broken a number of collegiate records under his watch, uh, is put your feet down. It's a, it's a cue that actually cues tension, in my opinion. Mm. To drive your foot straight down requires you to be tense through your quads, through your glutes, through your hamstrings, um, actually a little loose through your hamstrings, but tense, tense through your, your glutes and, and then at, at the bottom through your quads. Um, it's, a, it's a cue for tension. 
Uh, and I think so many, so many people have been coached to relax, relax, and and you see it and it looks awful. It's this weird, awkward stride that it produces. My favorite sprinters to coach are ones who are coming from football and they know how to be tense at the right moment. Yeah. Um, that's a good, that's a really good point. And, and I think it's, hike on, hike exactly. you know, off, yes. baseball, pitch on, right. let go, you know, pitch is done. You're yes. off. Uh, and it's the ones who like only do track who I have to work more to create that tension in them. The ones who are, are at any time ready to get like blindsided or, or like take a hit head on those, those people know how to create tension in a way that keeps them moving forward. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is like stuck in this. I'm trying to relax and, and I, and I just, I, yeah. Like sympathetic almost, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's probably, I didn't think about that, but there is probably some nervous system, uh, aspects to that relaxation and tension and when you're competing and when you're training hard you do want to be in a sympathetic state uh and then you want to get into that parasympathetic state as soon as you can afterwards and and maybe at some point we'll talk about what that looks like um, on the podcast because that'd be fun i I would love to do Uh, that I remember when I went to that for, oh, go ahead. No, go, go for it. I was going to say, when I went to that, that um, XPT breathing thing for yeah. my grad school project, I ended up you know, I'm at the park doing the three-minute breathing. But they, they used a good analogy. They had their little pet dog running around, and they're like, we want the, the dog, again, using animals as, the, this ties in well with the book, because it was like using an animal as an example of how to modify human behavior. Um, the dog, any dog, dog, you know, universal dog <laughs> sprints 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 and then like two minutes later it's sleeping and they were saying that's how we need to be when we're exercising we're we're switched on switched on and when we need to switch off bam off yeah right and that blue i had never thought of anything that way i was because i love that endorphin rush that you know it's a good charge but in terms of rec- getting into that recovery mode where you're more you know bringing it down a bit after you still have the charge mm-hmm. but you're you know, your, your body's not stressed, still in that stress mode. Yeah, it, exactly. And so it's, it's being tense when you need to yeah. be tense, yes. being stressed when you need to be stressed. So I'm and not in traffic flipping out, right? If someone cuts in my front of my it, lane. Exactly. Yeah. Especially on the way to a race or to a workout. Yeah. Because if you, if you are, if you have tension and are tense and are stressed before you need that, you're wasting all of that energy. And then if you, if you hang on to that after you need it, you're, you're slowing down your recovery process. But if you don't have it when you need it, you're leaving so much out there in terms of performance. Uh, and so I, I always, as a coach, I, I always try to set the tone for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't do a great job with this. This is something I hope to get better at as, as you know, I, I evolve and grow as a coach. Uh, uh, it, but I try to set up like, you know, we're getting after it today. Yeah. Or, or, hey, this is just an easy day. We've got yeah. some hard work coming up. We're coming off some hard work. And um, one of my coaching influences is uh, Lauren Landau. Uh, you can check out his stuff on YouTube. He's the strength and conditioning coach for the Denver Broncos. Uh, and he, he was somebody, one of the first people who I really learned that your tone as a coach can shape 
how your athletes respond to what's going on. Because there's a, a big difference between put your foot down and put your foot down, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and it's not a, um, it's not like an emotionally charged thing on the coach's end. It's a, um, I think it's a very dispassionate thing as a coach. Like you don't want to be emotionally involved in what you're doing as and a coach. You shouldn't have to use that all of the time. If you're always rah-rah, right? What do you, yeah. you it, it devalues when you really need to be rah-rah. Yes. Um, but when you need it, just like tension, yes, you should be able to create it and like snap it on. Um, Where they can interpret it exactly how you want it to be interpreted. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I, we will have to definitely, yeah, I want to dive into that because it reminded me of it when I was at Mission Prep coaching at one of our last races, one of the kids had been training hard, crushing it in practice, like throwing, he was in the lead pack always, senior. And at one of our races, he was like, I thought he was, he was going to do, he had, we had a certain time where like, okay, if you can do here, this, this is about where you should be on par. And he just blew up horribly. It was, it was a, just a bad race. Could have been for a combination of reasons like any race, but I come to find out he got a ticket speeding on the way to the race. And I never factored in like the, 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 I thought I was thinking from the psychological perspective of the distraction, but I never thought of like the actual physiological stress Oh yeah. that probably pulled away from him having a, a decent race. Totally. Well, yeah, you see the, the red and blue lights pop up and I mean, even if you're on the road and even if it's not for yeah, you, yeah. right? Like, like if you see, getting, yeah, exactly, hands, yeah. right. Yep. And, and you know, like, oh man, I was going a little too fast. Yep. Like though it's relieving if you see the, the cop go on past you to the guy who passed you a couple minutes yep. earlier. Right. But, uh, it's, yeah, I mean that surge of, of cortisol and, um, uh, you know, essentially that I, I, maybe, you know, more on the, the, um, the, bio biopsych there but it's uh it's a real phenomenon and and you can't uh disvalue that mm -hmm. yeah well we're gonna tackle that one in a, in a future pod but we'll, we'll keep going right here there's so much to chew on um the good insights though um so he's still on strength um or he's on strength here um the most erroneous doctrine in the matter of weight work is that slower, heavy work makes the male sluggish. That fast, quick movements make him quicker. The doctrine is false. There are some naturally ponderous men. They rarely try to become runners. And then he goes, those who are attracted to athletics are usually naturally nimble and active. Enhanced strength makes them more so. Great strength, properly acquired, makes for quicker reflexes, greater agility, longer stride, more endurance, since great strength can be parceled out in short, terrific effort, or a long, longer, easier one. Summed up the whole purpose of weight conditioning, as any form of conditioning, such as running the sand hill, is to acquire enhanced power in order that we can do a thing more powerfully, faster, and better. Nothing could be more, okay, and then here we go. As I, as I have briefly shown, the technique is known and has been practiced for generations and was perfectly known in the days of the great George Hackenschmidt, who was a legendary, um, I think, strong man back in the turn of the 19th or 20th century, um, around the turn of the century. It has been the basis of the work of the greatest gymnasts, tumblers, and strongmen from time, time to time, almost uh, immemorial. It is now used by golfers, tennis players, pole vaulters, and other specialists, all who find they have greater control, resilience, and power at their command. 
So he, he's referring to weight, weight training. Nothing can be more fallacious than the statement that weight conditioned men become muscle bound or slow in movement. Such charges have always been leveled by the puny types and the fearful. It is thus we know them. Weaker types and those who advocate watered down concepts tend by the very constitution of society to attract a greater number of followers, the many weak men rather than strong negative rather than positive. Again, it is how we know them. <laughs> and then he goes, those who can do no better than hoist 50% of their body weight overhead must be written off as amongst mankind's physical weaklings. Running alone is little likely to improve their sorry lot. <laughs> Love it. So regarding all things masculinity in the 21st century, I think Sarity would be... Um, perplexed or disgusted might not even be a strong enough word so yeah yeah uh, just interesting considering they probably weren't doing you know runners like to run more because that helps with the running but his whole idea of lifting low weight mm -hmm. low or high heavy weight low rep yep not people it was against convention right that's going to get you fat you're going to get muscle bound you're going to or not fat you're going to get you're going to slow down you're going to get too big and he was like no 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 you know it's one to three to five reps max maybe right right With and and any bodybuilder will tell you how hard it is to gain like a pound of muscle like they they'll grind for weeks at at some points to gain a pound of muscle and runners are so concerned like oh, i'm going to start lifting these heavy weights and i'm going to gain 10 pounds of muscle just like that and that's just not how human physiology works. Maybe there's the exception. I think somebody like Ryan Hall probably put on muscle very quickly. Um, you know, former, uh, yep. you know, marathoner. And, um, I think somebody like that, you know, maybe couldn't spend a lot of time lifting heavier weights. And so you, you do have to coach the individual. You can't coach mm -hmm. a, a general principle, but you know, we, we know again, he's so far ahead of the science. Like what do we talk about now in strength and conditioning? It's time under tension. You don't want to spend a low time under tension if you're trying to gain strength and, and gain size. You're you're a big fan of uh, Pat McNamara's strength yep. uh, work, as am I. Um, yep, yep. And like when he's doing his hypertrophy day, what is he doing? He's doing long, slow movements with heavy weight, heavy loads, uh, and that's how you gain strength. And whether it's weight or a resistance band or a sand dune, that's all the body recognizes, right? Tension. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and so. What a lot of runners were doing in his time is they would do things with like five pound dumbbells and they, they would like, you know, they would do Pilates commercials. Yeah, 30 squats like fast with five pound dumbbells. And it's, it's not like that's inherently bad, but if you're trying to get stronger, um, and, and again, like we know now if you are strong, if, if the whole muscle is stronger, you can take it through a greater range of motion. Um, and you can, because your body feels safe throughout that range of yeah. motion because the strength is present. Um, and probably is safe because the strength, right? You're literally yes, exactly. fortifying. Like yes. It's like a shield, right? Yep. Like a layer of armor, I think. Yeah, so I, mean, I love relatively heavy deadlifts, relatively heavy squats, being able to do pull-ups. Sarity um, yep. was big on overhead movements uh, for his runners. And for me, that's just such a technical thing that I'm scared of it personally as an athlete and I'm scared to coach it. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to having like a good strength coach 
teach how to snatch, how to clean and jerk um, for distance runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just think you have to be careful with that and with the loads that he's talking about. Uh, but I, I was thinking when he said, uh, like being able to take half your body weight overhead, I would have a very hard time snatching or, or uh, cleaning and jerking uh, be like 80 82 pounds or so mm-hmm. i don't know if i could uh right now and, and maybe that's just not enough technical knowledge but strength wise i think that would also be a challenge so maybe i have to uh, <laughs> level up what i'm doing uh, with the barbell <laughs> get in the iron game as he says yes right? yeah i don't know it's it's fun a lot of this like he said there's not he doesn't mince words and there's nothing nothing he says or does is half-hearted so mm-hmm. that's why we find him to be such an amusing not even coach, just human. Yes. So he's regarding training. We often train to exhaustion in this period. So he's talking about, I think, their last... He break, basically breaks their training down into three phases, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think he's talking about... Um, is this conditioning phase, right? Conditioning mentally and physically seems to go on almost continually in our spare time, whether it's our work or our studies. So again, he's like I said earlier, he's, they're reading Plato, they're reading poetry, they're reading the Bible, they're... they're you know, Thoreau, Emerson, probably Jung, um, the Greek, you know, class, a lot of classics. He's just, it's really fascinating how he incorporated that into another daily schedule where they would have, you know, he, he'd lecture them on things like Plato and during yep. his lunch, right? And, yeah, he, he was a true Renaissance man and, and he yes. was trying to develop more Renaissance men. Yes, yes. So we often train to exhaustion in this period. One has to break down to build up. Little nugget there. Half-hearted efforts never accomplished much or achieved great objectives, but there must be reason in all things, and each one must find out to what degree the organism can be exhausted or punished without a deleterious effect. If the effort has been extremely punishing, such as lifting max weights for two or three hours, or an hour's exhaustion work on the sand hill, or a hard exhausting run up to 20 miles, it may take the organism a full 48 hours to recover. And severe weariness will indicate little or or no training is possible until the organism has responded and recovered. We must be guided by our own feelings and experiences. And remember, both the body and the spirit can be broken down by overdoing the will or adhering wrongly to some imposed schedule. So good. That's unbelievably good training advice. (laughs) Yep. And then here we go with... On that same note with regarding like quantifying a workout or training or judgment to achieve okay it is remarkable how the organism can measure time deliver speed and provide our best effort when it was when it is required to achieve this judgment the athlete has to be taught to trust his inner time recorder aka i'd probably call that intuition Mm um i'm not sure what else it could be called inner clock i think i think it's I don't think that's too big of a stretch of a concept. Uh, as a quick tangent, there was a, yeah, yeah. a coach who I listened to, uh, and he's talking about visualization. He'd worked with some professional athletes and mm-hmm. with some athletes at UC Davis. I, I'm assuming he's still there. It, uh, it, he was actually a, a sports psychologist and, and practicing uh, guy. Uh, I don't remember his name, unfortunately. But he talked about a visualization activity he did with a... Uh, national class 
steeplechaser mm. and he had the guy visualize his entire race start to finish in real time i i forget the exact times you know say say he visualized running it in 855 you know he he had he had him start and then he stopped a stopwatch when he was done not looking at it the whole time but stopped the stopwatch when he's done and then he visualized uh like say 857 wow he ran you know the next week 858 wow yeah I've never tried that. I want to try that. Yeah, try it for your mile. Yeah. I, see what happens. I visualized parts of it, but I've never done start to finish and then guessing what my time would. Yeah. Yeah. I also use partial visualization yeah. just because like even you go longer than five minutes and like that's a that's a long time to stay engaged mentally. Yeah, especially if you're trying to make it polysensory, it could, you know, it, yes. it can be draining. Yes, for sure. Uh, but sorry. No, yeah, no, that's yeah, great. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. So back to the, the time recorder, right? Which can measure out his speed and strength practically perfectly accurately if it can be but trusted and responded to. Exactly what you just mm -hmm. said. The stopwatch can never adequately train an athlete to pace judgment. Occasionally, the athlete or the coach can use it to make checks as to, as to progress, but even such checks in trials are often very discouraging. It is therefore better when the athlete is a punishing and willing worker to ignore time trials and the like completely. Both the speed and the time factors become conditioned responses eventually. All the athlete needs is courage, the ability to suffer, and the will to win. These principles can be applied to all other distances. All right, we'll skip here to the end now. Um, again, I'm skipping through a lot. The book's called Athletics, How to Be a Champion. If you're enjoying uh, some of these insights, there's, there's so many quotable. I mean, I've got a notebook filled with probably 50, I don't know, yeah, 50 more quotes. From, from his, this is just one of the books. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it was an amazing read. I highly recommend it to anybody. Yep, whether you're into, yeah, philosophy, psychology, you don't have to be into running, I think, to get to get a kick out of this guy. Um, like we said, true renaissance man. So here we go. Most athletes, like most people, can be likened to the animal that seeks to gain its ends, but without the proper use of intelligence. So this is, again, that whole trust the process idea, I think, it ties in well with. A chained dog endeavoring to reach meat that is out of its reach will strive and tug at its chain and completely ignore a crooked stick, which, even held in its mouth, could be expected to easily drag the food within reach. So it is with most athletes. In concentrating upon their ends, they almost completely ignore a study of the means whereby they can, run their, whereby they can move their organism to better advantage so that they may run faster, further, easier. So indeed, it is almost universally desired to discover the schedule that the successful athlete has trained to, as if the copying of any schedule could be expected to produce the same result for another athlete, irrespective of place, age, type, disposition, initial strength, initial ability, and other factors. That was, uh, I think... 
I think a lot in this book was directly aimed at Arthur Lydiard, who was a, a contemporary of, of Cerides. He was a Kiwi, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, at, similar at, part of the world, the geography, you know, similar yeah, part of the world. Their guys were racing each other a lot, uh, and, and both had incredible success. Lydiard made a lot of his money selling books that the whole back end was training schedules. Mm. Um, and, oh, so and that's a direct, I, not I even think a subtle it was. Okay. Uh, I think that was a direct swipe at, at um, uh, uh, Lydiard. Now, I think Sarity also uh, is getting at that he's not going to publish, you know, the schedules of, of his athletes, um, uh, you know, just in order to, you know, for it to be a model to copy. He's giving out these general principles, uh, but he's not interested in saying. Monday you do this, yeah. <laughs> you know, five weeks Definitely out from not. the race you do this, and it's, uh, I think it's because he's, he views coaching so much more as an art than a science. I, th I think he views it as both, but more art than science, uh, as uh, how training should fall. And, um, again, that's very foreign to modern American training. It's very systematic, very schedule-oriented, um, you know, a, a lot of times like I'll, I'll write training for people and I'll, I'll try to tailor it to them but like I'm not doing much if any coaching I'm just saying here's your training plan go do it and like it's very systematic it, it can be effective but it takes away all of the art of coaching um, I guess like you know this this past fall uh, coaching cross-country I did have a plan and and you know we generally followed it but if I showed up to practice and everybody was like complaining yeah. about something hurting or like just looked tired, I would have no problem changing. And I did frequently like, oh yeah, we're not going to do that today. We're just going to go 30 minutes easy on the grass or something like that. And it's uh, that unstructured, intuitive element of training that a lot of American coaches don't have the confidence to do and, and or the know-how to do. And I'm not saying that I have the know-how, but I, I at least have the blind confidence. Yeah, hey, that's it. That, that, though, I think it's something, too. You have to... Because I like to think of myself as... And it could be a total pretentious self like self-aggrandizing concept but like more of like the artist style of the coach mm -hmm. right but maybe that's just because i want to think whatever it's that could be totally wrong on that maybe it's because i just don't know science that well right um that could be it too um but that whole idea of like you have to have both right the if you want to improve the art of being able to pivot or, or recognize mm -hmm. those things you have to have the science to be able to understand what you're going to pivot from and to, to right Absolutely. so yeah I think they, they, they feed into each other. Um, it's that, you know, that yin and yang, right? Just like the, the strength and the endurance and it's so many, yeah. Probably going to do art and science of coaching. Definitely would be a, I know there's books written on that, but I think that'd be a fun conversation to have. Mm -hmm. um, all right, we're going to kind of, we're going to close here and then we'll get on to next week's uh, episode, Be Fit or Be Damned, where will be our next book. And that is going to be uh, humorous is probably the only word I can say because there's a lot of outrageous stuff in there but it is amazing yeah also by Sarity yeah also by Sarity yeah and the picture is him running up a sand dune so the front cover okay so talking about this is in the appendix on and it's titled some comments on record breaking 
So it is my policy and always has been to train my athletes to be front runners. And Chandler, you can speak to this much better yeah. than me. Um, the policy may not always succeed for all, but it imbues a confidence and manliness that the less venturesome can never know. Winning is not everything. If it implies using up others or is gained by slowing up tactics, blocking, and the like, we will have none of such things. Every athlete, whilst he may hope to win, will gain more from running fast, especially if he can follow another over a record. Such a one will be very unfortunate if he also on his, on his day does not set a winning record. It is wrong to develop a complex about beating another competitor as if that was all there was to the sport. Such an approach is juvenile. It implies certain states that make it appear to win justifies some personal attitude or nationalistic one. I make a clear distinct, and I'm sure the Australian Olympic Committee didn't appreciate that <laughs> quote. I make a clear distinction about winning and ex between winning and, and excelling. Excelling implies winning, but it also implies running very fast, record fast. Excelling implies giving proper value to the means whereby the winning takes place, beauty of technique, courageous effort, initiative, and finally, great speed. To me, it is of the greatest importance to concentrate on excelling in life rather than merely gaining. To have known oneself, to have been the fastest man in the world for some event, no matter how no matter for how short a duration is to me a superior thing than boasting of some of the numbers of races one has won or the athletes one has beaten. And then he finishes uh, the next page. You may not like this, you may reject it, but the statistician has come to stay and your position in the sphere of things is clear. That is, if you appear to be in his lists. Even clubs are now statistically minded and rank their athletes. They must do it when they choose teams anyway. Long after we have forgotten who beat whom, we will be poring over the lists of the great ones who ran record times. By their attitudes to these things, do we know them? It can be asked, must not the day arrive when it will be impossible to set new records, that the limits of speed and endurance will have been met? But I say that day is a very long way off. That man, by intensive effort and greater knowledge, can be expected to perform very much better than we have seen up to the present. And then I'll close with this. Then we might... Um, <clears throat> Then we might move on where other factors are considered as well as speed and distance. Um, I mean, he's talking about science here and the advancements of science. Such factors as beauty of movement and execution, whether the, whether the athlete led all the way in a race, what time intermediate sections of the race were run in, also the full personality may be taken into consideration, such as the intellectual status of the athlete, his artistic and aesthetic nature. It must not be forgotten that the ancient Greeks in their Olympic games demanded that wars ceased at the time of the games and that the athletes were expected to write odes, exhibit a perfection of grace and beauty, as well as perform on a purely physical basis. At present development of modern man, it is the physical rather than the aesthetic that is valued. The fact of winning rather than the art of excelling. However, the, the object of this book has been to suggest that the two may be combined. I love that. Uh, at, when I first started reading that section, uh, I, it kind of, like, I wasn't too big of a fan. And now, 
I have a different context than Sari. Like there wasn't the depth of competition everywhere um, back in the '60s that there is now. Like mm-hmm. now, you can go to pretty much well, you could go to a high level meet about every other weekend um, anywhere in the world, essentially, and and like where winning is a massive accomplishment because you're you're beating world class people just about anywhere. Um, and so I, I, at first I thought he was getting at, oh, like personal records, like personal records being the thing. No, he's talking about national records, world records, especially, um, and, and a bit there at the end of like club records and what we might now call like school records, stuff like that. Um, I think I, I totally agree that pursuing those, um, uh, is very valuable. Now you, you're, if you're, if you run a world record, you win the race. There's no way to run a world record and not win. You could run under the previous world record, but whoever crossed the line in front of you um, already has broke the world record. And so, like, if you're going to run a world record, you do win that race. And so, like, they're not; those aren't mutually exclusive. I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm getting at. Um, and so, I, I guess I I just think that being aggressive and not settling for what he was really getting at is not settling for tapped voices. And maybe this is what you wanted me to, to speak a little bit more to like, just go. Yeah. 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 A front runner versus being like a, a sit and kick type runner or, you know, there's all kinds of different tactics and good world-class runners make a use of a variety of them. Um, It takes an incredible amount of courage. And he touched on this and and manly courage. Um, Courage is, you know, if you, look at back at like the the greek word that it comes from like virtu virtuous uh, is the word that get you know we we get virtuous from the word virtu and that that's courage in mm-hmm. greek um and uh, yeah it, it's a, it's an inherently like manly courage not that you can't have a female a woman who is courageous but it's it is yeah anyway i guess that, that that's kind of the the thing on courage and it's it is. It requires an incredible amount of courage to lead a race, especially when you have good people in your field. Um, recently, in U.S. track, um, Paul Chalimo, uh, who's an, uh, a world-class American distance runner, where's he out of? I don't know. His um, name. Paul Chalimo. I think he mainly trains in Colorado. Okay. Um, he was. Uh, uh, he's a. I don't know if he's still. Uh, in the army, but he, he was in the army. And so part of the army, uh, world-class athlete program, WCAP, wow. um, it, it's a predominantly foreign born Americans who, who come to America, join the military to, uh, earn their citizenship, which is a awesome, wow. uh, sacrifice and patriotic thing to do. And then they also run and represent the United States, uh, as a result. Um, awesome. and, and he's, a, uh, at least was a part of that. I don't know what he's currently doing, but yeah, he, he, uh, was at the U S championships and running against another, uh, uh, foreign born American Lopez Belong, who, you know, two of the greatest American 5k runners okay. of all time. And, uh, Cholimo took it out very hard and he, he played that front runner role, um, early on. And, and at one point in the race, he decided he was done leading and he tried to get somebody else to take over and they didn't. And it kind of, created a little bit of drama in the um, U.S. track uh, world. But that, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm talking about the, the portions that he was leading. It takes incredible courage to lead when you have world-class runners behind you because you do more work at the front. 
Um, I think Sarity probably would have It's like the guys on the tour, right? When they take off and they break break from the Peloton and go for it. It's gutsy. It is, and it rarely pays off. These breakaways rarely pay off. But when they do, it's it's an incredible thing. Yes. Uh, Especially in cycling. Cycling captures that really well. Yeah. Uh, In running, I think Sarity would have hated the idea of of pacemakers. I don't know if you ever talked about that, like people who rabbit races or or pacemakers for races. um, Because... It, you know, it, it's a modern convention. I know they had it. Um, well, actually, I don't know if they if that was a practice in the '60s. Um, that might be a more recent convention. Huh. But any, anyways, having somebody to set the pace, you know, while I, so like, I, they have scoffed at Kipchoge's record. Oh, certainly would have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody is probably familiar with how Elliot Kipchoge ran that breaking two project, and and ultimately under two hours for the marathon with like interchangeable pace teams and a, te- a Tesla with a giant sign driving in front <laughs> doing so much of that windbreaking work which actually does make a, a pretty significant difference uh, in terms of um, uh, required uh, energy output uh, and so like it, it actually wasn't the best way or yeah it wasn't the best way to run world records from the front but I think in his context when like records were relatively soft you were able to smash those by being a, a, a front runner. And so, it, but you were going into unknown territory and I, I, I'm not trying to knock what they were doing. I, I think yeah, it, yeah. even more to, um, to venerate it because they were going into unknown territory and they were doing it the hardest way possible. Um, and like, I think that that is maybe, um, if, if you had to give like a Twitter bio for the Stoughton philosophy, uh, is going into unknown territory and doing it the hardest way possible. And sh- showing no emotion. <laughs> and showing no emotion while doing it. Um, I think there's the uh, there's your little um, uh, social media bio right there yeah. um, for um, Sarity's philosophy. He would he probably rolled over in the grave uh, as they <laughs> said that. But um, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's what they were doing, it, and that's what made it so special and. Uh, really led to the running boom in in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, um, late 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, was the types of performances that Saturday's men were were putting out at Mm -hmm. um, international competition. And it was something special. And everybody wanted to join in on this event that's something special. Uh, This is maybe a bit on, like, the nature of the sport today, but everything is, like, if it's not a championship race, like, if you watch a... A, a diamond league race there will be like often like one or two pace setters and you know exactly what's going to happen in the race the pacemakers are set to go out at 60 seconds and they'll do that for the yeah. first four laps the and then they'll step yeah. off and like th- that's that's tracked today and it's so expected uh, everything is so predictable that wasn't the case and, and Sarity certainly would have bristled at, at that predictability of, of track. He he fought against that. Um, do you have a, a pull quote from the book? No, no, keep, keep, no, go for it. Okay, if you have something. I had one more I wanted to share. Yes, I had forgotten do. to earlier. Um, so it's on athleticism as a way of life, and I'd forgotten to go over this. But and then he also a big thing he was really big into, which the Australians call it muesli. We call it oats. He was very big into eating oats. Every day they ate dry oats with like dried fruit or some fruit on it, no milk, no water. He never drank, he never 
drink any liquids while he ate either because he believed that helped that messed up with the digestion of all the um, nutrients and stuff of the food. So interesting. They ate mostly a vegetarian diet with the exception of eating liver. So bang, bang. There we go. He was in the game. Liver gives you superpowers. <laughs> if you don't believe us, try it. All right. So, yeah, I... Um, were you going to finish your thought there? I no, I, I did finish. I read okay, that. Okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, perfect, I was like, I, I know I forgot this one, and I really wanted to share this one. Yes. And then we'll, we'll call it. Um, athleticism, in my view, is not a sport nor a cult. It is a way of life. For me and those like me, the only basic way of life. In my day, I've tried many things, and from all I turned away, eventually to return to athleticism. The term athleticism does not purely imply running in field games. Not at all. It means to me all activities that are based in sweat and effort and are something added to our normal, ordinary, everyday way of life. Athleticism can be a profession, a full-time job. It loses nothing perhaps by being so. Since certainly it is my prime enthusiasm, although I have never as yet been able to live on or buy it. And, okay, and then... Indeed, I will go so far as to say that it is only the athletes in this broad sense who truly live, who can savor life in all, its, in all of its aspects. And being fit, being an athlete, in no way debars one from being a poet, an artist, a musician, a great sportsman, in the sense that a golfer is a philosopher, scientist, um, academic, or a successful businessman. We have not arrived at the day yet. When all that I have mentioned is found, also in athletes, and more is the pity. When that day does arrive, when our politicians are athletes as well, well, politicians, I opine, all the world's troubles will be over. Our waste on wars, our mass stupidities, fears, superstitions, and childlike behavior in general. For only the fit are fearless. Only those who feel the strength in their muscle cells have true confidence. Only those who excel in something physical, but yet exercise the mind, can ever hope to be balanced, to live balanced lives. And balance, equilibrium, is the first law of the universe. Without it, we have no law, no order, nothing. And then I'm going to skip ahead to this last part, I promise. The fit, the truly strong, active, positive men who are athletes do not feel the need, the many supports and ramifications that the weakly feel they must bolster themselves up with. The strong and fit do not fear the other man, the other country, their competitor, as do the weakly. The athlete lives now, right in this moment. He is alive. He functions. He has little or no concern with um, hereafters, heavens, even futures in this life. He is too busy living in the everlasting moment. He senses and feels that the past is dead. Why fret about it? That the future, it with all its anticipated worries, hopes, and fears, may never happen may never be realized. The athlete, possibly with the artist, lives in the now and extracts from it all that living suggests and presents to us. It is true, in the past, there's been a tendency to consider that, that the athlete, a man, is a man without, an, without superior intelligence, an uneducated, physically strong oaf. There are superior people today who still pretend to such nonsense, who shelter their weekly attitudes behind such conceits. The truth is that slowly, maybe those of superior intelligence as opposed to brains are recognizing the importance of fitness, health, and strength. 
What profits a man if he makes million, a million and ends up a hypochondriac or dead at 50? The dead make no love, run no miles, scale no mountains, hear no symphonies, look at no pictures, and eat no oats. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I think so. Uh, so yeah, we'll, uh, we're going to close. We'll call that our first part in the two, probably two, could be three episodes of Serity. Could be four or five. We could make the whole <laughs> podcast all on Percy yeah, Serity. The Stoughton way. So look forward to next time. Uh, we'll be going over Be Fit or Be Damned and then training with Serity. And uh, yeah, discussing more of the Stoughton, all things the Stoughton way of life. So until next time.